everybody. Welcome to the live stream service of Genesis. And it's just great to have you with us this morning. Wow, we have reached the end, the final message in our series called Metaneon. I'm so excited to present it to you today. Just before we do, we want to have another worship song for you. I know you might just now be coming in that last song that we just played, coming into our hour. We will play again at the end of the service. Well, a couple of quick announcements. This is communion morning. We did switch it up. Uh, got a little bit out of schedule because of some personal things going on at home, which I'll mention in a little bit. But uh, go ahead and grab the communion elements, your bread, your cup, and plan on celebrating communion with us today at the close of service. Also, we are streaming live on Facebook where you can watch us too. So here's the slide over my shoulder here. You can watch us either using our website or on Facebook, either one. Now, be aware of this. If you're ever watching on Facebook and the screen goes blank, goes black, that's because a certain video content that we might be playing at the time, in particular our videos, our worship videos, um, gets taken down by Facebook. It's it copyrighted and there's issues with that. We're working through that. We try our best to get videos that aren't copyrighted. We have ones today that uh, should work fine. They're fully licensed for us. When our worship leaders are here, clearly that then it's not an issue. They're out today. So that's just been a challenge, but that can happen at any time with content that just we're not aware of that Facebook is blocking. If that happens, slip over to the website, okay? On our website, you can watch the full live stream, everything we do, all the videos, and nothing is blocked. Okay, so if you would like to make a donation, your tithes, your offerings, or maybe a one-off, you haven't ever donated to Genesis before, you found the messages life-giving, we would love for you uh, to be able to give and be a regular part of the giving here to our ministry. So... You can go out to the website down in the lower right-hand corner of the home page. You will find a link for donating. Or, as this slide will show you, you can text the word GIVE to the number that's on the screen. Again, just text the word GIVE to 720-730-8510, and that will get to us. A few steps involved there. And... Uh, it's a safe, secure way to give. A lot of people do use that. For this series that we're ending today, there have been six previous messages called Metaneo. I have been using a book and springboarding off the writings of Brad Jerzak. I'm showing you right now the book that's so very vital to you um, as you think about this subject of both metaneo and atonement, all right, at one with Christ. How do we become at one with Christ? What did Christ do? What did Christ accomplish by his death, burial, and resurrection? This book deals with that in particular. It also deals with the particular atonement theories that are out there that have uh, widely been believed by modern evangelicalism and caused people to have a skewed view of God. Get this book. It ought to be in your library. It's must-reading, A More Christ-Like God by Brad Jerzak. Also, during this series, I offered you two papers, uh, white, we'll call them white papers, position papers, uh, informational documents, one called The Seven Theories of Atonement. It outlines each of those seven in a great way. It's not a book. It's four or five pages give you a synopsis of each of the seven theories of atonement. Some people are very interested in that sort of stuff. It's a great um, thing to have alongside your, your Bible, your other study aids, so that you can study. That'll benefit you. And then last week, for the first time, I offered a glossary of terms. All right, this is taken from Brad's book, A More Christ-Like God. Write to me, however you want to contact me. Call us write to us, go on the face, uh, go out on our website and get a hold of us there. Let us know that you would like these two publications and I'll send them to you this week. All right, with that, we have a song, Sing Hallelujah. Sing along with us and remember, get your communion elements ready as we worship together. Pray. 
I am so excited about presenting this message to you. Let me first give a shout out to my wife who is not here today uh, with us because she's at home providing care for my elderly mother. Many of you have met her. And thank you so very much to all of you that have sent well wishes and prayers and you brought food over and the like. My mother two weeks ago entered hospice and uh, we're performing that at home for her. And uh, she's in good spirits. She fell very early on in the process and was in excruciating pain. We had to use morphine and uh, just uh, he heavy, heavy painkiller just to get her out of bed and to manage going to the restroom. We're past that and uh, just bringing her to a place where she can uh, function and do well. We moved her upstairs from her uh, apartment. Um, she lives with us. <laughs> okay, almost forgot that. So uh, she's upstairs with us, but the condition is such that it does require 24-7 care. Somebody has to be there. And so in uh, my absence, Nina is there with mom. Hi, mom. Hi, Nina. I love you both. And mom, we're believing for you, believing you have many more days left to worship Jesus and to receive those and love on those that care about you and love you. As you know, you've received a lot of um, you've received a lot of prayer and a lot of people coming to the home there that care about you. I would ask for our wider audience that aren't part of the Church of Genesis, you don't attend here, maybe you've caught us on Facebook during this series, hope you've been watching, just to lift your heart in prayer uh, for my mom. She's 101 this October, okay? She's 100 right now. So a lot of people never make it to that age in the first place. And this is the first issue with health she's ever had. Uh, so uh, we're just so fortunate, so blessed, and so thankful and grateful to the Father for what he has uh, done in her life and the direction he brought her. And uh, we, we just, we love you, Mom, and, and thank you again, all of you who have um, prayed and sent meals and the like. With that, metaneo, part seven. The word metaneo is a Greek word. It means to repent. But it doesn't mean the kind of repentance that evangelicalism has turned repentance into, filled with sorrow and pleading and crying and begging and, Lord, I will change my ways and all of that. The word metaneo actually specifically means to change your mind and even more specifically to think like God thinks or to put God at the center of your thinking, to think differently about God. This series, Metaneo, challenges you to think differently about God. I hope you'll share it around. I call today, I'm calling today the beautiful gospel or the gospel in chairs. Now this does not originate with me. Actually, Anthony Carbo, an Orthodox priest in Colorado Springs, was the first one that came up with this illustrative sermon. And then people like Brad Jerzak and Brian Zahn and others have used it and published it and been preaching it for many years now. So it does not originate with me, but it is mine. I've digested it. I've been chewing on it. It's reality in my life, and I'm so thankful for the beautiful gospel that we're going to learn about today. Uh, I'm going to share the gospel this morning in two different versions. One is the modern, western, judicial version. We could call it the legal version. The second one is more ancient, far more biblical, and it's the patristic model of the gospel. Actually, it is the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about the New Testament. We're not talking about a few sayings or about the four spiritual laws or the path, the model that you use to come to Jesus. We're talking about the ministry of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels, the four gospels. And together they comprise the witness of Christ on the earth, or his presentation of the gospel. The gospel is actually Jesus, all right? And, uh, oh my goodness, we've come so far away, especially in Western evangelicalism, from the patristic presentation of the gospel. When I say patristic, I'm talking about those early church fathers 
who taught the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the time Jesus died for the first 200 years. And then for the first 1,000 years of the early church, this is what they taught, all right? And we've learned more about that in the previous uh, messages. I don't want to go into that right now. In the first version of the gospel, this first presentation, notice it's going to have a very legal theme. It's a lot about sin and law-breaking, and there has to be punishment. If there's sin, there has to be punishment in this first presentation of the gospel. Someone has to be punished. Now, in this version of the gospel, Jesus gets punished eventually for us, but then if you don't accept that, don't believe that, if you don't do just the right things according to the model, that punishment comes back on you. So it's a very legal, sin, law-breaking type of presentation. In the second presentation of the gospel that I'm going to make this morning, it's, it's more therapeutic. Sin is far worse than legal law-breaking. Sin is a disease, and we need a great physician. You know, you can't beat a disease out of somebody. You can't punish coronavirus out of somebody. <laughs> All right? You need a great physician, and that's what the beautiful gospel is. So it goes like this. In the beginning, God created man. He created man to dwell in the garden, to image himself, and have beautiful fellowship with him. But unfortunately, suddenly, man sins and turns away from God. Now, God, being just and righteous and too holy to look upon sin, he has to exile man from the garden, and he separates from man. This is the first presentation of the gospel that most of us have heard and believed. Now, we understand that in this relationship, man often is making a religious effort to do good, to think right, to obey laws, and yet the Bible says that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. And so it never satisfies God's holiness, and he continues to turn away. Now, although God comes, he comes to create covenant. We're told about that throughout the Old Testament, how that God comes to create covenant with man. Man continually breaks it and turns away from God. How about Abraham? God made a covenant with Abraham, where he brought Abraham, came to him and said, Abraham, I am going to use you. I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. And he promised him a child. Thing is, Abraham got ahead of God, got into his flesh, and he tried having that child with a sex slave. Mm. Wound up turning away from God. Didn't work. Then we come to Moses. God comes, tries to make a covenant with Moses. Moses, I'm going to use you as the savior of your people. But Moses gets into the flesh, as we know, and he kills an Egyptian. Uh-oh, blew it. <laughs> Lost that one. And all of a sudden, God is having to turn his back on that one. Then we have David. Anybody know about David? <laughs> All right. God wanted David to be the king over Israel and eventually for the Christ to come from his loins. Problem is, when God came to David, said, I'm going to use you, make you the king of kings, make you a king from whom all of Israel will be blessed, the nations will be blessed as well, similar to Abraham. We find out that David had a thing for hot tubs. And he turned away from God, committing adultery and, in fact, having the woman's husband killed by sending him to the front lines of battle. 
That's what David did. Then God sends his son. Amen. God sends his son. Hallelujah. God sends his son. And Jesus lives as an example of perfect obedience and holiness. And certainly gives man a chance to turn back to God. But shock, God puts Jesus on the cross. And Jesus becomes sin with our sin, the Bible says. He bears the penalty of all of God's justice and all of God's wrath. And we're told about this in what modern evangelicalism and in this first telling of the gospel treats as the darkness of Good Friday. Unfortunately, God who is holy, he cannot look upon sin. Jesus becomes sin with our sin. God can't look upon sin because he's holy. And so he turns his back on Jesus. This is how the story goes in the first gospel. Jesus is hanging on the cross, becomes sin with our sin. God, being holy, cannot look upon that sin and turns his back on Jesus. Where do we get those kind of things? We're going to look at it in just a moment. But then, because Jesus didn't sin and he's perfect, God raises Jesus from the dead. Now, if you believe, if you believe that Jesus did this for you and took your sins and that he took God's wrath upon himself, if you believe that Jesus was punished instead of you, and if you repent of your lifestyle and change your moral way of living, then God will receive you and that wrath is removed. Then you're spared from the punishment of the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus and that you deserved. However, if you don't, if you don't believe this, then we're told in this presentation of the first gospel that we will remain in sin, that God's wrath will remain upon us, that we will be alienated from God, that God will continue to take a posture of being turned away from us rather than towards us. And eventually, if we don't turn our hearts back, then we will be punished by the eternal fires of hell. Unfortunately, there's a few flaws with that presentation of the gospel. Let's talk about them. The first one is this, the means to salvation. Did anybody pick up in that first presentation of the gospel that a lot of it sure seems to depend on what I do, on me making the right decisions, on me making the right choices, on me getting my life right and repenting and getting back in a place where God can receive me? It's called do-it-yourself religion. And it's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught in the parable of the sheep that he, the shepherd, pursues the sinner. He pursues it. And listen to this. Here's one line from that parable. Until he finds us. The shepherd pursues until he finds the sheep. No matter where, no matter where the sheep is, no matter how lost the sheep is, the Father, in Jesus' presentation of the parable of the lost sheep, he goes and he finds the lost sheep. Aren't you glad? A second flaw that I find in this first presentation of the gospel is that it pits God against people. One theologian said it this way, and this is a living theologian who's alive today and made this statement to Brad Jerzak, another theologian and the writer of this book that I've recommended to you, A More Christ-Like God. I quote, God's primary disposition towards humankind is enmity, wrath, and anger. 
that from a theologian. These are the people who translate our scriptures. These are the people who come up, uh, who teach in our colleges, our Bible colleges. These are the people who have taught most of the preachers how to preach and what to preach. Imagine that. God's primary disposition towards man is one of enmity and wrath. Well, where, where would somebody like these theologians get that from? Well, they get it from one half of one verse found in Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 13. I'm reading from the New International Version. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, Lord. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so God, in his disposition towards man, just starts from a place of anger and wrath and enmity. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 certainly seems to suggest that. Until you read the second half of the verse. Isn't that amazing? We create whole doctrines and theology, base whole schemes of theology on a half a verse. Here's what the rest of the verse says. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate wrongdoing? How interesting. Habakkuk was crying out prophetically and saying, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. You're too holy. You're too holy to look upon sin. So why do you? You're too righteous to buddy up to the sinner. So why do you? It was a complaint that Habakkuk had. Another place that that unfortunate doctrine is received or promulgated from is Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. I'm reading. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. But we again failed to keep reading. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Well, isn't that what happened to Jesus on the cross? God turned his back on Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, right? God's too holy to look upon sin, so he separates from man. That's his basic disposition towards man. It's one of wrath and enmity. Again, based on Habakkuk and based on verse 2 in chapter 59 of Isaiah. Your iniquities, have, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. But as you continue reading in that chapter, you come to verse 15, and here's what it says. The Lord looked, and he was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own right arm achieved salvation for him. That's speaking about Jesus. When he says, your own right arm, he's talking about the coming of the Messiah. Your own right arm hath achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And you go down to verse 21, listen to this. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips and the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forevermore. That's a prophecy, not only about the coming Messiah and what he would accomplish, but about God's heart. God doesn't want to be distant. God is not pitted against man. And when he looked and he found no solution among humankind, he reached his own right arm out and he sent Jesus. And Jesus established a new covenant of oneness with God. There's another version of this unfortunate view of man, God being pitted against man that uh, Luther, apparently, the great theologian and scholar and writer, Luther is credited. Now, we don't know if, if he's 
truly the one who came up with this statement, but it goes like this. You are snow-covered dung. This is what Jesus did for you, right? Jesus sort of protects you and hides you so that now you are, quote, snow-covered dung. You're still dung, but now God has covered you with Jesus. Interesting theology, isn't it? Now, here's something that a living theologian said regarding this relationship in Isaiah chapter 59. Well, it's like an asbestos suit. Jesus protects us from the white, hot wrath of God. How interesting. Now, the third flaw and the tweak I think we need to this first presentation of the gospel is that it pits God against Christ. What do I mean? Well, you'll remember when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Okay, that's taken from Psalm 22 and verse 1. And again, we stop reading. We build doctrines. We teach theology courses on the first part of the psalm. And it is a prophetic psalm, and it is talking about Jesus. It even talks about his hands being pierced and and his feet being nailed to the cross. It's very specific. But as you go back down through it, look at this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. Here's verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God didn't turn his face from Jesus. It felt like that to Jesus, and in his humanity, he was crying out prophetically, But it's like for some theologians and some people, when they read their Bible, Jesus would have had to hung there and quote the whole psalm to satisfy you in our ignorance of what the psalmist wrote. Keep something in mind regarding the foundation that we've built this entire series on. Jesus is God. He never stopped being God even when he hung on the cross. They were not separate. There's a scene, and I wanted to play it for you this morning, and we had a hiccup with the video, but it's just a short clip. It's a beautiful scene from the movie The Shack, where the main character is confronting God with, why did you leave? Why did you forsake my son and let him die like that? And Why did you forsake? Clearly, you're somebody who does that because you forsook Jesus on the cross. Again, that's the theology of this first presentation of the gospel. And in the movie clip, God being portrayed by an African-American woman. Ha! Can you get any better than that? Love, love, love that. Being portrayed not only by a woman, but by an African-American woman. So gentle, so beautiful, tears flowing down her face says, you do not understand the mystery. And she turns her hand over. God shows the character, her wrist, and there's a hole in it. And she says, we suffered together. I and my son suffered together. Don't you ever think that we were separate for even a moment. How precious is that? Well, I'd like to present to you the second version of our gospel this morning. And it starts very much the same. God created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden to have communion with them, to have deep fellowship, and for them to be able to image God. But Adam sins, and he turns his back on God. But what do we find that God does? God pursues Adam. Adam, 
where are you? Hope I'm still in the camera, right? I haven't stepped out of it. Okay. Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding. God comes up on him. What's that around your loins? <laughs> oh, well, that's some fig leaves. How come those are there? Because we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Well, and it starts this whole blame game. He said, she said, it said. But God actually pursued Adam. And then the Bible says Adam clothed, excuse me, God clothed Adam and then sent Adam out of the garden to protect Adam from eating of the tree of life and becoming eternal, making his condition, his fallen condition eternal. But guess what? God goes with Adam out of the garden, goes with him. He goes with him out of the garden and he begins to fashion covenants. How about Cain? You remember Cain, one of Adam's children, Cain and Abel, the story there? He came to Cain one day and said, Cain, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm just, uh, just preparing a meal. <laughs> uh, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. I'm very concerned about your attitude towards your brother. Cain goes out and kills his brother. Turns his back on God. What does God do? God chases him. God pursues Cain. God comes and says, Cain, look, I'm going to protect you all of your life. I'm going to put a mark on your forehead so that everybody knows you're off limits. Nobody can touch you. How about Abraham? Remember that miracle son that God promised him? But Abram tried to have that son through a sex slave. Whoops. What does God do? Hey, Adam, covenant is still on. I'm going to give you a son after all from your wife's loins, who, by the way, is nearing 100, right? Way past the age of childbearing. I'm going to give you your miracle child, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bless the sex slave, Hagar, and I'm going to bless her children. Woo, glory to God. Bet you didn't hear that in the first telling of the gospel. How about Moses? You remember Moses? <clears throat> hey, Moses, I know you killed that Egyptian, turned your back on me, and you thought everything was over, but guess what? God comes, pursues Moses, finds him out in the desert, and what does God become? A flaming bush. Flame on, Moses. Your purpose is still alive. Let's go rescue that people that I told you about. Isn't that fantastic? How about David? David, the great king. David turned his back on God with, a, with Bathsheba, who he's looking at out the window. Affection for her and hot tubs and had her husband killed. What does God do? God comes, gets in front of David, says, David, I forgive you and I'm going to bless you. And out of your loins is going to come the Christ child. Think of it. Out of the lineage of David and his wife came the Christ. How about Hosea? You remember, Hosea is one of those places where we find the scripture talking about God turning his back. And Hosea prophesies, God! These people, they constantly turn their back on you. They constantly break covenant with you. They're not worthy of you, God. God thinks about it and considers it. And as you keep reading through the book of Hosea, he says, you know what? I'm going to stand with my people. I'm not going to forsake them. I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to love them. We get into the New Testament and we find Zacchaeus. Who is Zacchaeus? Anybody remember who Zacchaeus is? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's turned his back on the covenants of God. He's sold out the Jewish people. He's lost all his family relationships. What does God do? 
God shows up under a tree. Zacchaeus is hiding up in a tree trying to see Jesus. He had small, small man syndrome. <laughs> so he climbs up in a tree so that he can see Jesus. Jesus walks under the tree, looks up Zacchaeus. Guess what? I'm coming to your house today. And he eats with him. That is the equivalent of not only forgiving his indebtedness and wiping out his sin, but the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus had such a change of heart that he said, Jesus, I'll go sell the things I have. I will restore what I have taken and stolen, and I'll give interest back on top of that. Wow. Then we have the woman at the well, right? We find the woman at the well. Jesus comes up. Now, this is a woman who's had one husband. No, two husbands. No, three husbands now. Four husbands. Five husbands. And the man she's living with now isn't her husband. <laughs> Whose husband is he? Jesus comes to her. He doesn't pull out a list of moral behaviors. Say, look, before you can receive me, you got to change all that stuff. He sits down with her at the well and says, you know what your problem is? It's not adultery. It's not fornication. It's not lust. You have an empty heart. You're dry. You need a good drink of the water that I provide, and you will never thirst again. Do you know that this woman goes back into town, tells everybody else what happened to her at the well? And the Bible says that the whole town comes out for a crusade and they get born again with Jesus. Hallelujah. And history tells us that this woman became the first evangelist and the first saint and that her and her sons were martyred for preaching and evangelizing with this great, beautiful gospel. Then we have the quadriplegic who's let down. They, four people carry him, and they get up on top of the roof, and they tear the roof apart. Remember that story? They let him down right in the center of the meeting that's going on with Jesus. Now, this is a man who, according to tradition at that time, being quadriplegic and unable to walk, at that time, if you had that kind of problem or disease, it was thought that that was a result of God cursing you. The same thing happened in John chapter 9, where the disciples brought a blind person, a blind boy to Jesus and said, Jesus, who sinned? This man, this boy, or his parents, that he was born blind? And you know what Jesus' answer was? First he healed him and then said, you know what? Stuff happens. He comes and he gets in front of the paraplegic who's been let down through the roof of the meeting where they're at, the house where they're at, and the first thing he says, says to him is, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Let's just take that off of the slate. Your sins are forgiven. Now, how do you do that? How do you just forgive somebody's sins like that? Oh, by the way, point, Jesus hasn't yet died hasn't been to the cross yet. Is it possible for God to forgive who he wants to forgive and not be bound by our legalistic presentation of what we think God requires to love us? <laughs> so, he says, woman, you are free. Where are your accusers, right? Or no, excuse me. I've skipped down. He forgives this man his sin and then heals him. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. They go praising God. No moral list. No, you've got to change your behavior first. No, I can't pray for you. You can't be healed until you come through the healing line and do it just the right way that our church prescribes. Jesus just has mercy on him and heals him. Then we have the adulterous woman who's brought to Jesus She's caught in adultery. A bunch of the religious leaders and town leaders and male, male, all male bring this woman and cast her down before Jesus at his feet. Say, we found this woman in the very act committing adultery. 
And they all had great big stones ready to stone her. Now, catch this. Jesus being a priest, Jesus being holy, righteous, God should have picked up the biggest stone and got ready to stone her. But he didn't. He said, let those among you, who among you is without sin? You cast the first stone. Come on. And nobody did. They all dropped their stones. And he got with a woman and he said, woman, I forgive you. Where are your accusers? She looked around. There aren't any, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I judge you. He comes to the demoniac who's broken. He's in chains, full of demons. Jesus shows up, comes, gets right in front, goes across the lake specifically to get to this man, shows up on his doorstep, and all the demons flee. I have another testimony for you. It's from Brad Jerzak and somebody that he dealt with himself. I'd like to play it for you now, could we? Here is a woman who came to Freshwind Christian Fellowship, a church that we planted. A lot of disabled folks, a lot of people with disabilities. She was an addict. She hadn't been able to stay sober for 100 days since the time she was 13 or 14 years old. She would hide vodka all over her house. Even through her pregnancy, she, she could not get clean at all. So she's on the run. She actually was sort of trapped in a, in, in a drug house and couldn't get out. And what did God do? He went and got her out of that drug house, and he gave her a good husband, and then he brought her to our church, and then she became one of our intercessors, and she became very good at doing inner healing ministries with people. And, and then, and then she fell off the wagon. And she took about $10,000 of her husband's money, or their money, and disappeared into the streets. And she was living at times in a cardboard box, at times in a pickup truck. And she was seriously losing her mind. She developed, uh, through needle use, developed um, um, hepatitis. And then... And then, uh, what does God do? Through her now ex-husband, the ex-husband contacts her and he says, um, I want you and your boyfriend to come live with me and I'm going to put you both through detox. And for two weeks, he puts them through detox, then he puts them in a recovery house, uh, each, a male recovery house, female recovery house, and she's in, she's in there and she has a talk with Jesus. And she says, I'm just so sorry. I threw away my husband. I threw away my children. I threw away my health. I threw away my faith. And I don't even want you to do something for me. I just want you to know I'm so, so sorry. And what does God do? He picks up, in, she has a vision of him picking up her needle kit, tying off his arm and injecting her heroin into his arm. And she says, no, you can't do that. He's too holy, righteous, and just to do that, right? And he says, actually, isn't this what I've done for every man, woman, and child on this planet? I have taken the curse and the sin and the, and the pain of this world into myself, and I've swallowed it in love. This is the cross. In that moment, her, her, she was cured. Now, we don't normally t talk about cure with addictions, but I'm telling you, she hasn't had a craving since in 20 years. 15 years. 15 years. And, uh, oh, it gets crazier. She goes to have her first interferon treatment, and they cancel it because they can't find any hepatitis in her body. And then, and then she, she, uh, she calls her ex-husband and says, I want to get married. Would you walk me down the aisle? This is Hosea stuff now and he does it. After a year together with her new husband, the ex-husband says, I, you need more time with the kids. I want to invite you and your new husband to come and live in my basement suite, and we'll raise the kids together. 
Eventually, he sold his half of the house to them. She went back and got her MA in counseling, and today she's a family, family therapist for Jesus, who's just changing the world. And her new husband is, is a landscaper who only hires addicts to walk them through recovery. This is what our God can do. Here is a... Wow, 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 wow. <laughs> because God loves humanity and doesn't want them subject to death, he sends Jesus to become human. Jesus comes that he might heal us as a great physician. Are you running from God? Are you running from God? How about you? You caught us on Facebook this morning. I think God's kept you tuned in long enough for this question. Are you running from God? Well, I want you to know something. He's running after you. You might be trying to do this, but he's chasing you. And he will pursue you every day, every week, and every month. You know why? Because God looks like Jesus. The legal system, Jesus nailed to the cross. He did away with sin. He did away with our human failings. And then humanity, Jesus, became sin with our sin. And he went into the grave. Jesus took our fallen nature, our do-it-yourself religion, and he went into the grave. And then you know what God does? God gets in there with us. God in Christ is reconciling himself. Keep in mind, at no time have God and Jesus ever been separated because Jesus is God. Christ didn't come to change the Father. He didn't come to placate the Father. He didn't come to satisfy God's wrath against man. He came to reveal the Father. And thanks be unto God, Jesus rose out of that grave and he says to us, you are in me and I am in you. We are one atonement, one at one man. You see, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And there's never been a time where God wasn't like Jesus. Now, we haven't always known that. We haven't always known what God was like, but now we do. God gave himself for us. He fixed it. I don't have to. It's not the Father that needs to be reconciled to the world. It's the world that was reconciled to the Father. And now, according to Paul and the Pauline Gospel, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. A more beautiful gospel. God will find you. God will chase you. God has forgiven you. And you find your identity in Christ, not in religion, not in legalism, not in moralism, not by going to church. Our identity is in Christ. Grab your communion elements and get ready to celebrate. I invite you, if you come and partake of the cup here. If you'd like to sanitize your hands there, you're welcome to. Now, during this next song, we're going to receive uh, our communion here locally.
In just a moment, I'll get you started with the cup and the juice. I want to explain something before we cut away uh, to our song that will close our service, and you can receive communion there. The Bible says that Jesus became sin with our sin. That his body was hung on that cross for us. And what the cup, which symbolizes his blood, and the bread symbolizes his body, what it means to you right now as you take, what it means to all of us here this morning as we take, I am one, I am restored, I am reconciled. No matter where your journey has taken you or what you've been feeling, where you've gone, where you wound up, and what condition you're in right now, God loves you unconditionally. The price has already been paid. He's pursuing you. You are one with him already. And as we take, let's eat. We're going to play this song for you. Close our service with it. Let's take and eat and then take and drink. And remember, you are one with Christ.
shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up. 